This episode of Truth Table is brought to you by InterVarsity Press, whose vision is to catalyze redemption, restoration, and revival in our divided and broken world. Follow IVP on Twitter at IVPress and visit IVP's website at www.ivpress.com. Hello, Truth Table listeners. This is Christina Edmondson, one of the co-hosts of Truth Table. And it's time for us to do one of our Truth Table classrooms. And I'm up. In 2019, I had the opportunity to speak at a conference called Just Gospel that met in Atlanta, Georgia. The theme for that conference was Reconcile Us, O Lord. And um, I was asked, um, and actually I was going to be doing, I think, a panel discussion or a conversation and um, the the dear person who I was going to be in a conversation with um, was not able to make it. And so I was asked if I would just do a teaching. And so now you get to experience that teaching that I provided for that audience of conference attendees back in 2019. The topic was polarization. And that's obviously a word that at this point, we probably all should have familiarity with. So I hope that it blesses you. Um, Remember, whenever we give a teaching, whenever we present a classroom, it is within the context of the needs of that audience, as well as what's happening socially, politically, and within our within the, the community of the church at the time that situates our talk and our words. So, uh, I hope that it's a blessing to you, and I hope that this episode finds you in good health and feeling loved and known by God. You all almost saw me just crawl right up on this platform. He was like, dignity, dignity. Because <laughs> I will just jump right up on here. Okay? Don't let the appearance fool you. I'm, I'm pretty down home. Um, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. I was looking forward to having a conversation with my sister Trillia this morning. And uh, due to circumstances outside of our control, that didn't take place. And I'm hoping and praying that the Spirit will breathe fresh and anew over the talk I plan to give this morning. And my hope and prayer is that it serves as a bit of a segue, a bit of a hinge, a joint between what happened yesterday and what is going to happen today. The topic that I'm going to talk with you about this morning is the topic of polarization. Polarization. And it has relevance to our conversations about race and ethnicity, and certainly relevance to our conversations about gender. The topic specifically is the Apostle Paul and a polarized nation. So I'm going to tell you just straight up, and not even give you a whole lot of statistics on this, but you can go and, and uh, after you buy your logos, um, <laughs> You, you can look through this for yourself, but we live in a polarized nation. We live in a nation with ideological dyads. Now, the truth is we're actually not as polarized as what uh, is presented to us, but we're forced to plant a flag 
and declare at one end of a pole. And poles are typically far apart, and they're far apart to ensure that we can't really see each other well on the other side. And when we can't see each other really well because I live at this pole and you live at that pole, then we will struggle to do something that is incredibly necessary in order to respect, to love, and to learn from each other. We'll struggle to humanize each other because we can't see each other. And sometimes our poles are so far apart and fenced around that it protects us or punishes us from being able to experience perspectives outside of our own. Republicans, Democrats, poles. Northern folks, Southern folks, hello Atlanta, <laughs> poles. West Coast people, hello Akemeni. East Coast people, tis I. Poles. The Apostle Paul offers some wonderful intercultural lessons if we're willing to see them, if we're willing to hear them. Now, you and I all come to Scripture with biased hermeneutics. Now, if you don't think you come to the text with a biased hermeneutic, then I'm actually really concerned about you and your teaching. Because that means you have no system or filter in place in which to safeguard what you're seeing and saying. To deny bias is to say, oh, I'm good, I'm acultural. I approach this neutrally, as if the word was divinely inspired to my brain, which has had no experiences whatsoever. So let me tell you who are the most biased people. The people who deny that they have a bias. So the Apostle Paul knew he had a bias, y'all. And Lord knows I got several. We can see in his journeys the critical role that what we're going to call cultural aptitude plays the critical role that cultural humility plays in his ministry, and the critical role that cultural authenticity plays, knowing who you are and not making excuses for it or hiding it. To be an ambassador of the gospel, this aptitude, humility, and authenticity are vital to God's gospel mission. And I want to give you two examples as we journey together through the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And I hope, prayerfully, make applications that are faithful and relevant to today. So two examples. One, where the Apostle Paul connects with people outside the community of faith. Okay? These are your non-church people, your unbelievers. The second is a narrative where the Apostle Paul is ministering to people inside the family of faith. So we got inside the house business, and we got outside business. 
So polarization, so this can make more sense to us, from an intercultural standpoint means a judgmental way of seeing things. Now, when I'm using the word judgmental, I'm attempting to use it in a morally neutral way, attempting. You know how we say, like, you're so judgy, she's so judgalicious. Um, you got a judgy spirit, right? So that, that implies, like, you're doing something wrong, right? But I'm presenting it to you as a way of just simply critiquing things, um, discerning things, understanding it, twisting it. Polarization does that, and it sees things in two ways, which is us and them. Us and them. And typically, in polarization, we find ourselves being overly critical of the them and giving a pass to the us. You know, as if we are the uh, keepers of orthodoxy in and of ourselves. And sometimes polarization presents itself in reversal. And this is real tricky. And it's when we see things in us and them, but we overly criticize our us. Let me give you a concrete example of what that might look like. That might be the person of color who's read, I don't know, a couple of theological textbooks, and now all of a sudden they turn up their nose at the black church. That's polarization reversal. That's the woman who hears about sexual assault and goes, but what was she wearing? It's particularly painful and trippy when it's an in-group disrespect and an in-group harsh judgment. Maybe we can ask the Holy Spirit to prick our hearts in the ways that we manifest those things, even right now. So, let's journey with Paul to the Areopagus. And that's a tricky word. I could have used my logos to uh, um, <laughs> help with enunciation on these things. I'm telling you, brother, you're going to sell some of those. Dang. I'm just... You know, I got a shopping issue too, so you, you know, and, and I was sold, by the way. Okay. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So we're journey, journeying to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I'm always amazed that God talks to us. Two things amaze me, just rabbit trail. God talks to us and God allows people to have people. This is shocking to me, that humans have children, because we crazy, and that, and that God talks to us. And it's also shocking and shameful that we don't want to hear him. So here's the word of God, and let's step on top of our shame and hear the Lord today. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, 
as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, and where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, you know, like Twitter. <laughs> doing nothing but running miles. <laughs> Verse 2, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. See, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The word of God, God still talks to us. We should be quite grateful. You know, the Areopagus literally means a big rock. It's named after Ares, a Greek mythological figure near the Parthenon, its large pagan temple. And I must tell you how struck I am that Paul is declaring the rock of our salvation physically standing on the rock of paganism. I'm just going to pause here for a second and talk about something called common grace because I think it's important for saints to understand this truth, to embrace it, that all truth is God's truth. And this legalism that props its head up and says, well, Christina, I don't want you to read any social science books. You know, can you, can you only um, say words that I'm comfortable with? No, 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 no. See, this is my father's world. And there is no discipline in which the salt and light of Christians should not engage. And if you make the decision, well, I don't know about reading about critical race theory because what will they say about me? Then you have decided to concede it ground to the enemy. Wherever we choose not to go because we're so afraid, then we have said, devil, you may have it and you may have the people that are there. And you know what? I'm not saying that. This is my father's world. And we are to critically engage every subject, every discipline as salt and light, salt to illuminate and to expose. I'm sorry, light to illuminate and to expose. Salt to purify and to keep. If you don't show up, then expect for it to rot and die. And the judgment will be on us for not showing up when we had the Christian liberty to do such. That is blood-bought Christian liberty. And I, for one, am not going to trample on the blood of Christ by pretending I can't read books that I get the right to read. So that's my rabbit trail, and I'll return to my notes. But I just wanted to be clear today. And I... And I've noticed something about the bias that lives here. There's something unique about people of color and about women when they read things beyond what they're not supposed to read and understand. And to that I say, not today, devil. We're not playing that game. Hey, y'all. 
Takemini here. You all know here at Truth Table, we absolutely love the church, which is why we are just so honored to introduce to you a new book entitled The Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best by Reverend Erwin L. Ince Jr. The church is at its best when it pursues the biblical value of unity and diversity. In the new book, The Beautiful Community, pastor and theologian Erwin Ince shows us how to cultivate spiritual practices that reflect the beautiful community of our triune God. He unpacks the reasons for our divisions within culture and within the church while gently guiding us toward our true hope for wholeness and reconciliation, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Truth Table listeners can save 40% off of the beautiful community when you order at ivypress.com using promo code TRUTH20. The offer expires on September 30th, 2020. So jump on it, y'all. That's promo code TRUTH20 at ivypress.com for 40% off of the book, The Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best by Reverend Erwin L. Ince Jr. So common grace is a good thing. And we should critically discern. And the good thing about reading material and engaging with ideas that are not distinctly Christian, is that you come with your guard up to discern. I'm much more concerned when we read things that have been baptized in Christianese and we say, stop critically discerning. And then we find ourselves wrapped up into theologies that were never biblical to begin with that have devastated our communities. So how about we critically discern everything and always keep our Bibles open? You know, this Bible was written in a cultural context, divinely so, pointing to a Christ born into a cultural identity and given to people, and none of which are acultural. And in this passage, we see the Apostle Paul functioning as a spirit-filled intercultural expert. He demonstrates cultural appreciation. See, cultural appreciation does not require moral neutrality. I do not have to pretend that I don't have a sense of right and wrong to appreciate something that is culturally different. But it does require that I engage something, an idea, a people, a practice, a custom, an interpretation long enough to even know what I disagree with. To truly know it from its best representative so that I resist the sin of making a caricature of my neighbor. See, in order to judge something, you gotta see it rightly. You have to draw near enough to understand it be humble enough to receive an understanding from its best representative. Sitting with something long enough to see the systems, the histories, and the experiences that have made it into what it is today. You know, folks have the most rigid and strongest opinions about the things they know the littlest about. And emotional intelligence research shows us that this is quite true. This folly in which we talk the most assuredly 
about that which we have never read more than a blog about. You see, secure people, secure people can speak with a generous orthodoxy instead of a hyper-vigilant legalism demanding prescription where God has given freedom and love. Demanding prescriptions where God has given a person, Jesus himself. Paul shows cultural appreciation as he walks around long enough, literally walked around long enough to know that the people were, quote, quite religious. You got to walk around long enough. Humble yourself and walk around long enough, read long enough, sit with long enough to know something about your neighbor. He says it right there in the text. You're quite religious. And he's walked around long enough to know where people have their serious debates, knows the locations of importance. He understands the language that they communicate in. He knows what that community, that group, that discipline, that philosophy, that worldview, what they find value in. And he's able to appeal to what the community already values. He uses it as a bridge in which to give himself access to bring them gospel truth. Don't blow up your bridge if you really want to bring them gospel truth. Because remember, you said your motives, you know, we, we evangelistic, right? Don't blow up your bridge if your goal truly is to bring them gospel truth and not just your culture or opinions or your judgment. You can't blow up the bridge. What shall you walk on to get to them? He finds out what the community finds value in, and he uses that as a bridge. And Paul could have said, you're doing it wrong, pagans. That's what he could have said. Some days I feel like, you're doing it wrong, pagans. Pagans, honestly, side note, is one of the funniest words to me. <laughs> pagans, you know. Pagans. But anyway, um, <laughs> it makes me feel good saying it, you know, because it's, it's, it's real judgmental, you know. Pagans, you know. Um, you know, pagans, I need to show you the right way to think, you know, based on myself. And he uses the language of the people and is able to sit with it long enough to go about doing this work. He can acknowledge the common grace that is already there at work amongst those peoples, those pagan peoples. And see, God's grace doesn't back up on a people group just because we might back up on a people group. Thanks be to God, it doesn't. God's grace is evident around God's world. And Paul uses appreciation to then strategically and prophetically point to the God of grace. He's able to literally use the pagan people's belief systems as a platform bridge to point to the gospel. It appears so in the text. He's able to cite their most esteemed poets. We are his offspring. Remember that part? 
And then he tells them a deeper, truer gospel meaning of what's really in that statement. He's able to preach a gospel that is able to reach the diverse people that are present. He's able to reach the intellectually and socially elite. He's able to reach the so preach to the socially marginalized. A true prophetic, strategic gospel message is able to reach people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And if it can't do that, then something is wrong with the gospel we preach. A polarized gospel will fail, but a biblical gospel will not. A made-in-America gospel that only flies here will fail and is failing. But a gospel that reveals the cosmic redemption of justice and grace for love's sake can, will, and has overcome. Hear Christ's words, it is finished. This gospel is able to reach this polarized group. These Athenians, see, they believe their group was superior. They held this very common pagan belief of cultural superiority. We tend to think of pagans as people we look down on, but pagans historically are people who look down on us. And so to be specific and to give you a present-day application, white supremacy is paganism. It's pagan. Cultural superiority is pagan. My people, my country, my block. See, that's the best one. Because I'm a part of it. It's a bit of a moral narcissism. That belief system of exceptionalism runs throughout human history, and it's very deceptive. And Paul preaches a gospel that denounces the heresy of racial hierarchy. He does right in that text. One God brought about all humanity, a rich tapestry from one man, Adam, And we are more like our neighbor than we want to admit because we got the same roots. And that fundamentally slaps cultural and racial superiority in its bold, heretical face. A true biblical gospel preaches to a diverse world because our faith is Catholic. That means that it is for all peoples, diverse peoples. So to recap, Paul shows an understanding of these people's values without running around and yelling, pagans, pagans, stop it. You make me uncomfortable doing what you're doing. Not an effective way to build a bridge. He uses their language where appropriate because God gives grace to all of God's world, which means we have something to learn from people who don't believe like us. 
He points to the truth and that which is good and helpful in their practices to point to the truth, capital T. And we see with humility and poise, with no gospel compromise, a winsome approach to reach his diverse neighbors. So that was to the folks that's outside the house. You see that strategy? Note to self. Hmm. But there's a bit of a conversation that I want to lift up that Paul has with people that are inside the house. This is a, this is a family business conversation. And you know how your family talks. Sometimes we might avoid Thanksgiving dinner because we know how family talks. <laughs> so let's journey to see people within God's covenant community of grace. Galatians 2, 11. In this moment, we find what um, some practitioners call transformational conflict. Now, I'm not opposed to conflict at all. And sometimes if we can go on and get on and have some quick conflict, we can settle some things. You know? Instead of being all passive-aggressive and cowardly and coy, we could just lay it out and be like, I disagree with that, and let me tell you why. Conflict just means we have differences that really matter to us. And if we pursue it together because our motivating why is that important, Christ himself, we might be able to get transformation out of it. In transformational conflict, we, are may, we might be bumping heads, but that can be very necessary for our growth. So here's some family business. Galatians 2, 11, verses 11 through 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Yeah, he did. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision party. I wonder who you afraid of? Who am I afraid of? Who would make me want to draw back from folks that I know are part of the family of God? Whose opinion do I value more than what God has required of me? Just a rabbit trail. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. They co-signed. They joined him. They screenshot. I see you. It's cowardly. Oh. And so by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Ooh. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, 
I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, that I really would be a lawbreaker. For though the law, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not set aside the grace of God. Mm-mm. Ain't giving it up, y'all. Get used to it. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Y'all, this is family business, in-group business. And, and Paul is speaking real clear, frank, and grown man-like in this text, okay? And Peter, if you know anything about Peter, Peter's got a reputation for, you know, he don't cower back either. Let me give you an immediate quick application for this, for in-group talk, in-group direct transformational, transformational conflict talk. White evangelicals must have frank conversations with white evangelicals. kind of tired, y'all. That's white folks' work. Receive that blessing. <laughs> I'm just serious. In group, in group, black Bible believers got to have frank conversations with black Bible believers. Real talk. Women get to say things to women that men ought not say to women. I mean, they could, but should they? <laughs> Is it strategic and prophetic and effective, or will you look incredibly biased as you prop up theologies that give you power and tell them to be quiet? You see why it's helpful to have in-group dialogues? Paul is direct because Peter is attacking the central element of the faith. This is not an argument about which version of scripture to use or whether we want hymns or contemporary music. This is an argument about the gospel. 
And if you're going to be real passionate about the, you know, you're a defender of the faith, self-appointed. <laughs> then what you get passionate about reveals your God. Secondary and tertiary issues got you all in knots. What's that about? Let's make our passion about the most important thing. And see, leaders are held to higher standards. And this is why Paul has to talk to Peter like this. He's like, you know who you are. And you know when you do wrong, when you're quiet, when you should speak. And when you speak out of turn, you lead people astray. Your offhand comments and tweets, they have implications for people who follow you who won't crack a Bible or won't use logos. Uh, hello? <laughs> The cultural legalism that Peter was espousing was discrediting the blood-bought gospel. And our own cultural legalism does this. You see, legalism is Jesus plus anything else. My husband drives this home very nicely when he preaches about legalism. And I add a little side part to it. And I remind folks that Jesus sits on a throne and not a love seat. It's a throne, y'all, not a love seat. Jesus is not impressed with your 16th century confessional statements. Jesus is not impressed with what you think you see in the text about your secondary and tertiary issues. Jesus sits on a throne alone and he's good good. And our cultural legalism isn't just like a difference of opinion and you see social justice this way and I, no, 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 no. Our cultural legalism is heresy. I know that's a strong word and people are like, oh my God, don't say it. Oh yeah, because it attacks the core gospel message. So that's what makes something a heresy. If it attacks the core gospel message, then it's a heresy. Oh yeah. Jesus plus American exceptionalism, heresy. Jesus plus white supremacy, heresy. And if we really love folk, we would talk about it like that. We would say, my brother, my sister, you stand condemned. And you lead others astray. And I want to do another little rabbit trail that black dignity is not the same as white supremacy. I am tired of really problematic ways of trying to build unity that discredit and deny history and reality. Just because we are all, and this is very true, called to forgive and to love and to abide with each other does not mean that we have to pretend that we have a black supremacy problem in America. We're we not going to pretend that's what's happening. Black dignity says that black folks are actually human. White supremacy says that white folks are many gods and have the power and authority to dominate. See, that's not the same, y'all. We're not going to play like it is. 
The them, remember polarization, us and them, the them in Athens experienced Paul showing cultural appreciation. But when Paul talked to his good friend in group, co-labor in the gospel, they had a very real direct conversation that reminded Peter and others that cultural legalism is heresy and that it's worth engaging in transformational conflict in order to hold on to that beautiful blood-bought truth that it is Christ alone. And you know another poll that causes a lot of frustration and anger and passionate blogs in the church? It's another set of polls. Complementarianism and egalitarianism. Welcome to some more polls where people sit on both sides and act as confident as the day is long Confident beyond how they should act. Why? Because scripture, ooh, it can step on toes on both sides so quickly. But poles want a surety when God calls for obedience. God don't have to give us clear-cut answers. You know that, right? God doesn't have to. Generous orthodoxy does not need the legalism of always knowing and sounding like we know something 100% assurance when we don't. We are, through sanctification, developing the mind of Christ. We do not have the divine mind of God. And I believe sometimes God gives us conundrums to humble us. to say what would love require in how you see your sister? Why do you lust for a prescription when I give you principles? See, our theologies don't just live in our imaginations. They live out in our sociology, our politic, and our social ethics. And that's why complementarianism and egalitarianism, oh, they matter because they have social political implications about power, about the distribution of power, about the work of the Spirit of God in people that he has purchased by his blood. So it matters. Polls matter. And we need to be honest about that when we enter today's conversation. But we also need to know the conversation in which we already have a surety is about who Christ is. All subsequent conversations ought to take the tone of secondary and tertiary issues. I'm just saying, if you take a 30-plus-year-old theological doctrine like complementarianism, and I see you hold it up the way you hold up the doctrine of the Trinity, I'm going to call you bluff. And I'm going to say, is this about the love of Scripture? 
But what's up with the power pool here? When we don't keep the main things the main things, we reveal who our God actually is. So that's my, I guess, my admonishment, which I threw on at the end of my talk, is that whatever we talk about, talk about it in the proportion that it deserves. It matters with significant social-political implications. But it is not the gospel in and of itself, so we don't get to take people's Christian cards because they are okay with women who can say words from the Bible. Blessings to you.